it's enough to make your heart grow sad. God bless them, we don't care if we win, lose, or draw. Darn the hair, we care because we only know that there's going to be a show and the Glasgow Celtic will be there. the best darn team in Scotland and the Pleaguers all are grand. We support the Celtic as the other finest in the land. We love them, we'll be there to give the boys a cheer when the league flag flies and the cheers us up when we know the Scottish Cup is coming home to rest at Those were the dulcet tones of Glenn Daly. This is Paul Larkin, and you're listening to a football special about my last ever book, Tim's. With that in mind, I'll hand you over to my colleague, Mr Paul O'Neill. I think the best place to start with this is right at the very beginning, of the prologue of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you tell a story about how your, your dad reacts to an incident that happens to you and your, one of your school pals. Mm-hmm. And I think it was funny, but I don't think it's almost like dark humour. Mm. Um, is that what you, you were trying to do, to show a, a true representation of sort of your journey and growing up in, in that time? Well, I mean, it's, it's basically, I feel now we live in a world where everybody tries to present the best of themselves all the time, you know, particularly on social media and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, there's kind of like signposting to people's lives where suddenly our relationships status changes or whatever it might be um, and I also think that um, people lie a lot <laughs> and think that everything in their world's perfect and trying all that kind of thing and I just thought you know that's not really what my world was like and also um, it was to basically present the fact that my life growing up was not full of trips to the zoo or trips to the cinema or you know, loving hugs and unconditional love and all the rest of it. Um, there was a lot of hardship, there was a lot of hard times, but within all that and the kind of fundamental to all that was Celtic. Um, so I wanted to sort of tell a story in the prologue that kind of represented all that, where, you know, my love of Celtic um, essentially takes me 
on my new mountain bike up to George the Fourth Bridge Library with my pal Gregory, on the on the the basis of we'd heard that they had much better football books. Um, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Paul, the library at Muris used was basically a porter cabin, Aye. and you know the sports section was basically one shelf, and if somebody that liked football had been in earlier that day, then you were screwed. You know they are <laughs> taking all the books out. So somebody had told us, can't remember who, that George the Fourth Bridge Library in Edinburgh, which of course is a huge um, library, had loads of books and not just recent ones, but old ones and all that kind of thing. It was like, great, you know, let's kind of go up there. And so we went up there on our mountain bikes to get these books and managed to get some absolute cracking books that I'd never seen before, like for It's a Grand Old Team to Play For by Ronnie Simpson and all that, and the story Celtic by Willie Maley. And came out, George Fourth library proud as punch only to see that our mountain bikes had been stolen and uh, our, we were 15 16 year old at the time and our reaction was to hysterically laugh at this thing what i'd thought about and obviously realized now is that that was fear the reason we mm. were laughing so then i i'll not spoil the rest of the story but then i kind of take it back to um when I have to go home and sort of present the fact that I've got my, my recently new um, acquired uh, mountain bike stolen. Um, and obviously that story's expanded into seeing things about, you know, trips to the zoo and cinema and all that kind of thing. They just were not the norm for me and my family. But before anybody get, feels too sorry for me, what was the norm? It was going to watch Celtic all over the place. So that did make up for a lot of the things that at that point, you didn't even know that you missed them because you never had them and you you, know, you didn't know they exist kind of thing. Um, so in that respect, I guess, in the sort of circumstances we lived in, the area we lived in, the kind of economic um, barriers or what it's certain things, then I was quite happy um, that that was the case, that I could still go and watch Celtic. Having said that, as I mentioned later in the book, all the people, adults at that time, had to have was the will to take children to games because it never cost them a penny, really, other than maybe a pie or a, a juice, which, you know, a lot of pubs would just give you free to kids at that time because um, you were lifted over a turnstile, you were sitting on guys' knees on the bus and all that sort of thing. So, aye, I wanted to paint a picture straight away for the reader because this, as you've probably seen, is no really a conventional football book, never mind Celtic book. No, it's no. It, it's you can tell that when you're reading it as well that it's it feels almost like a a frustration with like modern football and how how mm. that's that's turned out compared to to the older older game. Well, is, is that that, I, I mean, like I can't stand modern football. I think anybody who knows me knows that, and um, a lot of Celtic is as much part of that as anything. You know, I, I really can't be bothered with people who look through green-tinted spectacles at everything Celtic Day or think that, you know, you win a League Cup and everything's fine again. That kind of drives me mad. Also, the price in the games, um, the inability people now have to go week in, week out, unless they've basically got tons of disposable income. A lot of people still stay with their ma, didn't have bills and all that kind of thing. It's changed the dynamic of football quite a lot. You know, when I started going... Um, used to go on a bus and pretty much the same 50-odd people went every single game, home and away. Mm -hmm. Primarily because they could afford it. It wasn't that there were any bigger Celtic supporters than anybody is now or anything like that. It was affordable for the working person. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a couple of quid. You know, when I started going, I think it was one fifty to get in for an adult. Um, and even in the centenary year in eighty eight, it was only two fifty to get in an adult. Um, so with that with that in mind, people could look at it with their wages and go, you know what, that's that's pretty affordable. And they could also have a drink and and all that sort of stuff. Whereas now. I think it's just become, it's almost become like a cult where certain people can afford to go to every game and other people can't, and yet there seems to be a kind of levelling up of, it's like, well, you're Luke Dunapone if you can't afford to go to every game and all that. And it was something that I'd actually thought about a lot, specifically um, during the pandemic, and put together with a couple of others a kind of hardship fund idea for um, if basically people affected by the pandemic, whether they lost their jobs or their health had deteriorated or whatever it might be, were increasingly more at risk, vulnerable, anything like that, that season ticket holders could come up with what I call a hardship fund. And in that hardship fund, you would basically have no guns to anybody's head, the ability for people to put money into a fund that, that, that people at Celtic, season ticket holders and such like, who had been affected by things, could take out and this was unanimously rejected by the so-called Celtic executive and um, you know I, I was aghast but no surprised because the people who are on the Celtic executive do not live in the real world you know they live in their, their wee bubble where they're completely unaccountable and have absolutely nothing to do with the match going Celtic support so that really angered me um, because I just felt that it went against the grain of everything that Celtic, you know, was for its form for, should be about and could be about. And that's when I started thinking about this book in the sense of it could easily have been just a tirade against all that and modern football and all that. But instead I thought, why not just write something that actually talks about what it used to be like? And I'd read a few books. Um, there was one um, Liverpool book I read, which was called something along the lines of "Here we go, gathering cups in May" or something. Mm-hmm. And it was like at that point, five stories for five different people watching them win the European Cup, you know, in '77 and onwards. Mm-hmm. And I read this one guy's story. I think he went to Rome. I think it was Rome in '77, and it was like planes, trains, and automobiles to get there. And it was just, you know, he basically went with, like, he had a plastic bag with a set of sandwiches in it <laughs> and, a, and a packet of fags and, like, ten bottles of beer. <coughs> off, and off he was going to Rome. And um, he'd go there, I'm not spoil it, because it's a brilliant book, he got there by basically coming up with a scam involving a petrol station that the Mafia would have been proud of, right? <laughs> and um, so... I was like, this is this is brilliant, and this is what it used to be like. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, I, I know what it's like because I, you know, I remember growing up and listening to older guys talking about when they watched Celtic in the forties and the fifties and all that sort of stuff. And now we're the older guys, kind of thing. So I thought, right, I'm going to write all about that, and I'm going to go after people who I know have done that and have been there and, and tell different stories and all that. No go after the, 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 the obvious things that most certainly books mention, whether it's Lisbon or whatever it might be. <clears throat> Talk about games and stories and incidents that aren't even really written about that much and or and, and why they were important and all that kind of thing. 
because you know I've never tried to I've, you know I've never been one that I've never wanted to write somebody's biography or you know here's this and you know romanticize everything and and then there's a book on the Celtic shop shelf and everybody's happy and there's your thirty five pence we're going to give for selling the book and all that no interested right so I thought right I'm going to write this completely unconventionally with no linear structure. We had slight theme going out about, about this is what it was like and this is what it used to be and bringing in people of a similar ilk, some of whom have, have written stuff for me before, others who haven't, to try and sort of knit together why I think it was a lot better back then without just sounding like a miserable old, you know, compo for last of the summer wine bemoaning every single thing because it's modern type thing. Because at the bottom line is, Paul, and, and you'll probably realise this yourself, is that people who buy these kind of books, they're no young people. Mm. They're people for 35 to 65, really. And they're all of a similar age, background, and so on. So I'm hoping that these kind of things resonate with people, even if they didn't support Celtic, although don't for one second think I think anyone who does not support Celtic will buy this book because they probably won't. But this is just similarly about a lot of the things that I think are being eroded now, not just at Celtic, although they are, as I say, prime movers in this, but in football in general, where it becomes, I guess, a kind of pathway to... Football gave me so much joy and happiness and adventure you know, as well as anguish and, you know, and depression and all that sort of stuff. But there were so many people around you that were in exactly the same boat and that made it easier. That no matter how bad it was on the Saturday, you'd all be back there on the Wednesday again and so on and so on. Whereas now I just think, especially I'm talking from a Celtic perspective, it might be well the same at the other clubs. Supporters now are just so fragmented. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with that. Something you just said there about how how it would resonate with other fans. I, I agree with that because, as you know, I'm, I'm not a Celtic fan, yeah. but the, the ethos of the book about growing up and having the same route, uh, traditions and routines and, yeah. and being handed down to you for, for family members is something that I think every football fan would, would strike a chord with because no matter what team you support, somebody introduced you to it, somebody took you on match days. Yeah. And it is, it, like, for me, it felt like a real nostalgic trip as well, and that wasn't even really my error. So, yeah, I mean, to... there's so many things that, like, I mean, you, you obviously you said you're not supposed to sell, so you support Hearts. I mean, I used to go to Tyne Castle, and I've obviously started going in the 80s. When I first started going to football, Hearts were in the first division. Mm. And I think it was about 83 that came up. So then that was my kind of experience. You got to Tyne Castle from then on in. And then, like, I can remember in the late centenary year and stuff like that, going to a pub that's just, which is called Lucky's now, it used to be called the Derby, and it was all Hibs and Hertz 40s, and it was a, you know, People have to understand, I was 13, talking about 13 year old, I think, in 87, November 87, about first went to this pub, and was amazed to walk into a pub with all these football photos on it. Like, what the fuck? You know? First of mm-hmm. all, I'm getting in the pub, and secondly, I got brilliant photos, right? And then we'd walk through there, right along Gorgie Road, um, when Celtic had the Gorgie Road end at that point, you know, which you look back on now as an absolute death trap, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was like an open terrace, and with two tiny exits that basically 10,000 people were supposed to get out of at the same time. and But that never entered your head. You know, this wasn't part of the kind of lexicon until Hillsborough happened, and then you realise, Christ, I mean, that could have been anybody. But we'd go along Gorgie Road, 
singing, you know, chanting, you know, drinking and pubs full of people. It was just so full of life. Mm-hmm. There was the Saturday afternoon shoppers, the traditional old woman with a handbag and a long overing coat and the, you know, the, the blue rinse perm and all that sort of stuff. Oh, all right, boys, and all that kind of thing. There was no like, oh my God, here comes an invading army and everybody run for the fucking hills. And then after that, you could meet people who were also, who were maybe your mates or that, but were also hair supporters. There wasn't like, I'm not going to speak to him because he's the devil or anything like that. Whereas now I go and it's like there's a fucking iron fence between the supporters. And, you know, I know the young team, both sides cause a bit of havoc and all the rest of it. I'm not denying that. I've done the same myself. But I'm just like, 90 minutes is when you're my enemy, right? Really. You're not going to become my enemy you know, you live two streets away from me and uh, you're struggling for food and money like I am and all the rest of the other um, challenges are working class because you happen to wear a maroon and white scarf, you know? <clears throat> Similarly, I talk about rivalry with the Huns. Now, I'm talking pre- and post-liquidation. I read a book uh, that was put out by the organisation No By Mouth because... That's an organisation that's constantly attacked by Celtic supporters and I thought I'm going to write about them but I'll do my research first. So I read a book that they put out about rivalries, right? Rivalries all around the world, you know, Barcelona, all the usual stuff. And when it came to us in Sevco, the premise, the whole story was, why don't we all just get along, right? <coughs> all you need is love, right? And that pretty much would be my premise for that, except nobody them. And it's no, and that doesn't mean I want to keep their heads in or murder people or anything like that. It's just like I oppose everything they stand for. Therefore, I'm not going to be bosom buddies with anybody who supports for them. You know, mm. I've obviously met and and had associates that are huns and all that through my life, um, but it's a fucking rivalry, you know. And it's something that in Scotland we look down upon. You know, it's where we we you know you get my United Liverpool or whatever say in England. Um, or the traditional clubs that play and I always say the traditional big five in England were you know Man United, Liverpool, Everton Spurs and Arsenal and it's like when they teams play each other it's like blockbuster two tribes going to war and all that that's fucking you know and maybe often not never ends up like that right but that's how they do it whereas with us it's like right let's make it a 12 o'clock kick off and uh, there's no baby before the game shut all the pubs do this do that and I'm like who the fuck why you know why do I am I, am I treated like that Again, I guess that's partly the issues with modern football, isn't it? They want mm. to play everything down. They want to keep everything safe. Like, like if they kicked if they kicked off a, a Glasgow or Edinburgh derby at like seven o'clock at night, folk would be steaming. There might be a couple of fights or something. It's not going to be World War Three, like, realistically, because no. it used to kick off at these times and and people survived. It's also you talk you talk about that that rivalry as well, obviously in terms of pre and post liquidation. Mm. And that you think almost it'll never get back to what what it was. No. Um, and the, the example of that is like the cutting ticket allocations for both mm. teams and stuff. Yeah. Do you think that's something that will get sol- resolved if going forward and, and it'll, it will become the more like the rivalry it was? Or do you think it'll never, never get back to that? I don't think it will in my lifetime. And I think the reason for that is because now they've had a tasty banning <clears> us or no having us it's very difficult to turn that back. 
Because if like let's just say for example, they decided so that we we played them in a couple of weeks. Although I've read today that game might now be off, but so that would leave us two games, one home and away, right? And mm-hmm. let's just say that they have an agreement between within that that you know what we'll just go back to how it used to be and we'll put the fans in and all the rest there, and then we go to Ibrox and one. Mm-hmm. Their fans will go absolutely ballistic, right? Now. I did. I I want their fans to be at Celtic Park. I have no interest whatsoever in this nonsense where it's all our own supporters, right? Because to me, away fans are what make football games, right? And anybody who disagrees with that, just think to yourself that that the next time you've gone up to Ross County or St Johnston or whatever on a Sunday morning, you're what you are. What's going to make that football match because you have that will and desire to go and watch your football team, for Christ's sake. There was a couple of hundred Celtic supporters went up to Perth on uh, Boxing Day to watch the team for a corner. Mm-hmm. You know, that such was their devotion. I know full well if I'd been younger and fitter and all the rest of it, I'd have probably been there myself, you know, mm-hmm. because I've done that things like that in the past. Away fans are what makes football, you know. They start singing, shouting, ranting, raving, and your home fans start to get fucking up there. I talked about Hertz Celtic. I can, I can go back to when Hertz had the corner and there was no seats apart for the main stand and that, and you would have the space between the Celtic end and the Hertz end, and there would be people climbing up fences giving it Yahoo against each other. Guess what? <laughs> Nobody died. You know, there wasn't an international incident that took place after that, and we all went home happy. The other thing is, I have great memories of Celtic Hertz games at Tynecastle, for example, as I do all over the place. A lot of the reasons why these games were so fantastic were because of the supporters. And a lot of the reasons why the supporters were so fantastic is they were treated like human beings who could go for a couple of pints before the game, go and stand beside their mates, sing, chant and spur on their team and then go home again. Right? Mm. And I've seen some absolute classics because the fans, Joe Steen said it, you know, that football without the fans is nothing. That's absolutely right. We saw that last season. You know? And I'm not just bitter because we didn't win anything. It was an absolute shambles last season, not having any football or anything. I, th- I think that's a, a massive point as well. As it, you, you talk about ticket allocations being cut, but on the back of last season, you think there'd be a more mm. hunger than ever yeah. to get back to what it was and create the spectacle again. And if that, I think you're right. If, if that's the route it's going doing so quickly after not having fans, I, I think that... What, Having the taste of that. Well, it's I mean, unfortunately, I don't know what to turn this into. I think because it's. I mean, you'll have seen in this book. There's hardly anything about the Huns or Safeco. Mm. They they actually <coughs> campaigned to make sure there wasn't supporters back at games. I know. After that, which is just what are you? What is your reason there here, like you know? But I, I mean, it's just they, when I think back. I mean, it used to be. You've got to remember that these games, the Celtic and Rangers games prior to liquidation, started off with basically half Celtic, half Rangers. You know, one week at Celtic Park and a few months later at Ibrox and so on. And then, even then, when I started going to Ibrox, we used to get the Broom Loan, the, enclo- the West Enclosure, the main, half the main stand and half the Govan stand, or just about half the Govan stand. You know, there were, that was for one reason and one reason only. They could not fill their ground. You know, it's <coughs> as simple as that. Um, and I just think when it gets down to all the politics and all that kind of thing, you know, even taking it right through to a modern era, this Tottenham Arsenal game being postponed, you know, yesterday. I mean, who who gave one single thought for the fans? 
as well as it being an, an awful on the derby obviously it's a fucking two teams that are worldwide supports and we'd have guys coming from all over the country all over Ireland and people from Europe and all that kind of thing to just be to say they actually you know what we're not playing anymore they're not going to get their fucking travel money back or their hotel money back or anything like that and the fucking clubs didn't give a single fuck about them so you know I so that's I the spectacle um, which used to make it you know, I just can't see returning anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about um, fans travelling to games like the North London Derby and stuff mm. because there's, a, there's a, a bit in the book about, you talk about how when you Celtic used to play in Europe, you never attracted football tourists. It was guys that gave a fuck yeah. because they had to spend spend two, three days on a bus going to Switzerland Aye. to get there. And I suppose that that's in a microcosm, a massive shift in modern football. Well, I mean, definitely. I mean... First of all, like, you know, when there was the advent of, like, um, club-run trains, you know, to games and stuff like that, and they were absolutely extortionate, but then they opened the door for folk who didn't necessarily have to go to every game because they were getting tickets on it and all that kind of thing. And now, you know, clubs, not just Celtic, are just going to be like, well, if folk are willing to pay for it, we're willing to put it on. Mm-hmm. And that left to your ordinary point of saying, you know, what used to happen with the buses, like, especially early 90s and stuff, you'd be roughly about 100 quid, and that'd cover everything. You'd cover your bus, your hotel, and so on. And um, you never, ever looked at it like, oh, fuck, I've got to sit on a bus for two days to go and watch Celtic. Like, you were like, this is going to take me to the Celtic game. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have to say quite often that the, the guys organised it were praying for draws in Northern Europe as I outlined in the book because you could go via Amsterdam <laughs> I mean that's just the way it was you know um, and I've seen many I've obviously never named any names but I've seen many a sheepish married man coming out of certain establishments and all that kind of thing you know but that was um, just how you done it and so of course when you go there um, you go you're fully beans you know because you're like um you know, I remember we went like in the Lisbon Lions bus and that for George Square in Glasgow and the bus was leaving at six o'clock at night. Man United were playing Liverpool before it was a two old draw and we were in the pub for half past twelve. <laughs> right? So you know, you think about that now, you've got right Paul, we're gonna go on a fucking twenty eight hour bus journey. Let's prepare for it by going to the pub for six hours before it can. Um <laughs> so we we done that and then you're on the bus and of course you're chanting non stop by this point because you're steamboats. And, you know, you've basically reached bigger at that point, And everybody's already <laughs> fucking gone bananas. What then used to happen quite a lot, this, I would say this was pretty unique to Celtic buses, is the minute where the bus tyres went over the, the English border, everybody would go bananas and start <laughs> chanting all sorts of songs, and, you know, as you can imagine. And then by the time you reach somewhere like Preston, most people were out of the game completely. Apart from the one or two who basically could not stop talking and stayed in the same state of drunkenness the entire trip almost all the rest of the bus would want to kill that person by that point, Ken, because their voice would just be heard over everybody else who was trying to get a kip, you know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, um, and then you'd be heading to Dover, which felt like a junket to the Riviera that you were getting to go on a ferry for an hour and a half. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, here we go, and everybody would be running into the fucking bars, obviously, and then the duty frees and... You know, the, some, the, some of them were really rough trips, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the English Channel was never the calmest water in the world. Mm. And I can remember, distinctly remember a, being in a duty-free place once and a whole massive uh, display of vodka went over and smashed because of the roughness of the boat. 
and two guys Jeez. just jumping down like bugs and licking the vodka off the flare, like, you know? Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there was, like, another time going to Hamburg, I remember, we uh, recently signed George, well, six months before signed George Cadetti and going into this big reception area and the whole fucking Celtic end, Celtic end, Celtic, the whole bar was basically full of Celtic bars support singing, there's only one George Cadetti. And then... It was like this. You ever remember the things we used to see with the dominoes, where you touch one domino and it would create a whole Olympic record bid. Aye, aye. How many dominoes? This sort of sea tension went across the place, and it was kind of like, why is the mood changed? And it was because one boy was walking through with a hunter. and <laughs> never see if anybody tried to lift a hand to somebody like that. You, they would have been the ones that got battered because it never was like that. But it, what it did remedy and was people everybody started singing, oh, spot the loony, spot, spot, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, you went there as ambassadors of the club. Now, obviously, people stretched that quite a lot in terms of their drunkenness, but very, very few people were violent or completely out of order. Uh, and matter of fact, I probably, um, when we played Hamburg um, in Hamburg, I actually started a big fight. I never deliberately started the fight, but it was my fault. Um, we were in this pub, and the owner was being a bit of a dick, and we went outside, because there was a big game of football going on. And, we're kind of, and I turned around, and I noticed there was a Union Jack stuck to the front of this pub. We serve British beers, so I set fire to it, right? So the owner come out and fucking um, went ballistic at me, and remonstrated with me about the pub, in German. And my mate, Big Mooney, who didn't have a clue what had went on, other than the fact that he was this guy demonstrating with his mate, fucking clocked on me. And that was it. So all the bar staff come out and all that. And then, of course, all the football players just saw Celtic supporters being attacked and all that kind of thing. And it ended up a big, massive brawl. And I mean, it was quite a dangerous thing because kind of broken glass all over the place and all that sort of stuff. And eventually it all got calmed down. And then everybody started to fucking sleep. What the fuck started that? That's when I just sort of started to slink away a wee bit, like, and fucking <laughs> to realise. But I mean, you know, I'm no excuse. It was a fucking ridiculously stupid thing to do. But that was a kind of mindset. Um, uh, and I also remember that trip just. Hamburg at that time, I know it's a big fancy ground now, but it was a horrible ground back then. It was like open terrace and fucking, like, you know, it looked like it had never been touched for a war. And there was these two guys, i never forget, putting this banner up on the fence, right? Big, huge tricolour with, um, actually, with Bathgate Provo's written on it, believe it or not, because Fergus McCann went nuts about it after. And they literally got finished putting the banner up, and the referee blew the half-time whistle. That's how long it fucking took. <laughs> but you, when you're in that drunken state, where you know that way we are... I mean, this is a plan. I've been paying people listening to this. I'm talking to people now who drink solely for three or four days. You know, you're not going to tell them, actually, that's not a really good idea on the fourth day, baby. You know what I mean? <laughs> so all that kind of stuff I wanted to throw in the book in just terms of how different the travel was and all the rest of it. Um, I never... I'm trying to think. I did not fly to a European game with Celtic until... Oh, God, I think it was Leon in 1999. Every other trip was bus or car. I drove to Amsterdam, Ajax, mm-hmm. or ferries to Ireland or whatever. Every other trip was, you know, it was, then suddenly it was like, oh, we can fly there. Cause it, and I'll tell you another thing as well, and I, kinda, I think I mentioned this in the book, it gives you a really crap sense of geography. Because I remember going to Amsterdam and arriving there on a Monday morning, for leaving on a, a Sunday afternoon, 20-odd hours on the bus, and a guy walked in that I knew, 
big Neely and he'd flown over from Edinburgh that morning and got to Amsterdam an hour later and I was I couldn't work the suit at all. Like, what? It took you an hour. I've just sat on a fucking bus for two you know. Um but aye, it was just all bus, bus, bus kind of thing and there was always a camaraderie. I mean, because you would never can most um, clubs couldn't run a full bus of their own members, so they always shared and all that. I never remember a single issue on any bus fighting or people not getting on with each other. Whereas now, I think we're all a bit more individual, and it probably be a lot more difficult, you know. Yeah, in terms of in the buses, I suppose that's something a comparison with like f- football, but uh, modern times and sort of the older generation. Now you can take tens of thousands to an away game in mm. Europe. Yeah. Like at the drop of a hat. And previously it was maybe a, a couple of thousand, like a hardcore that probably were expecting to get beat anyway. Do you think that's something that's better? Or, or you can take travelling bigger numbers? Or do you think it loses that kind of sort of, I don't know, that, that kind of sort of feeling of it being special when it's a, a big effort? Um, no, in my experience, no. Um you're right. I mean, the guys who went to Europe then, when I was growing up, that were a hardcore support. It wasn't like somebody who went to two away games a season suddenly decided to go to Hungary or whatever. That just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, that does happen quite a lot. There are people that I see at European away games and that, and I never see anywhere else. You know? Mm-hmm. And um, Celtic, unfortunately, have this ridiculous um, system where the European game tickets are allocated on the basis of European game attendance. Now, people will think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you. I could afford to go to every European away game if I didn't go to any other games. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. But unfortunately, if you go to every away game and stuff like that, it makes it very, very difficult. And as I said, unless you've got tons of disposable income. Um, and these folk do appear, the tourists, you know, I've seen it with Scotland as well. Um, where they turn up and it's you know the new strip and all that kind of thing, and um, it's those that are the ones who cause the most trouble. And mm. I'm not saying they necessarily go out to cause trouble, but they just are completely out their depth and didn't know what the kind of rigmarole's all about, and so therefore, you know, there can be a bit of pain in the arse to be quite honest. <laughs> but the same people who, for example, you know, would turn up to a Hertz Cup final, you know that. To hardly say it foot in Tyne Castle but because mm. of the cup final against Gretna or something there's tons of tickets so I'll go to that you know um, and you know it's fine and I'm, if they want to do that that's great and all the rest of it but they are no the people that I associate with when I go to these games and um, you know they're, they're just you know I, I didn't really feel like I have much in common with people like that and for a while I mean the first real Example I saw was when Martin O'Neill took over Celtic and then suddenly there was bigger attendance at European games and the ground was packed every week and all the rest of it. And no content with coming into a kind of going thing, these people, a lot of these people tried to sort of change the dynamics of Celtic and start going, oh, we shouldn't be singing these songs and we shouldn't be being you know, like, fuck off, you know. <laughs> this is Celtic. If you want that shit, go Easter Road, you know. But, you know, this is where... We've always done things and we've done these things for a reason and and if you didn't like it, fine. But then you come in and try and tell me that everything I've been doing for my whole life has been wrong and you, Aye. you know, have decided to, oh, they're successful, I'm going to support them. Now know better because you fucking didn't. Uh, I guess that, that's something I was going to ask about is like, do you think there's a bigger spot amongst, not necessarily just Celtic fans, but modern fans, there's like bigger splits within supports than there used to be? Or do you think it's maybe just more that 
they can voice opinions because you give an example in the book mm-hmm. about how some people say they don't bother about selling, for instance, the naming rights to Celtic Park. Yeah. And you, and for you, that would be like sacrilege. Yes. Do you think, you think there is a bigger divide between fans now or do you just think people have got more access to, to talk pretty much? I think the people who come in now are far less likely to rock the boat because they're just happy <clears> to be there. And if you, if things like the name of the club or the name of the park or the strips you play in or that matter to you, I've, my experience is they're not interested in you. They didn't want to have anything to do with you because they think they are the guardians of all that kind of stuff. Now, the reason, it's not been much of a thing recently, but you see it. You know, um, where stadiums are called, you know, like the Emirates and all that. And I say that all the time. People always used to say to me, "Pinacio, that's be sacrilege to, you know, uh, sell out the fucking naming rights to Celtic Park." And people would say, "Oh, what difference does it make? We'd all still call it Celtic Park." And I used to always say to them, "Well, what's Arsenal's room called?" And they'd always say the Emirates. I say, "Well, it's no, it's called Asperton Grove," but you didn't know that because the media bombarded you with the Emirates. So. I'll just think that Celtic love to play up this image more than a football club and a club like no other. Well, why is that? Well, it's re- it's for reasons like the current site where Celtic Park is situated when the ground was first built there was built by volunteers. Now, that's important to me because that's a legacy that they've created that I feel, among many other supporters, that I've been charged with kind of keeping a close eye on and ensuring that that sort of thing doesn't sort of... Me, and, it, and it's not even rocket science because Brother Walfred done it in, in 1887 where he laid in an identity and an ethos for Celtic and us as supporters are there to protect and continue that ethos. You know, you saw the reaction of clubs with traditions in England to when the European Super League came along. But as much as people are like, oh, this is a fucking disgrace and all the rest of it, I can guarantee you, and this would happen at every club in Scotland, definitely, there are supporters at Celtic, and include the Celtic board, would have fucking jumped at that, right? Jumped at the opportunity. But then you say to yourself, so what is the point? If we just jump at money for everything, what is the point? You know, to me, football is about glory, right? And glory comes from a journey. You started off down there, you ended up up here. Remember all the trials and tribulations we had getting there? And when you did it, you turn into the person you were with, that full journey, and you say, fucking hell, I'm glad I was with you. What a fucking time it's been, etc., etc., etc. What clubs like Man City and Chelsea found out was that making that jump from down there to up there instantly because of money didn't guarantee them anything. It certainly never guaranteed them supporters because they still can't kind of fall their fucking grounds. Whereas you look at your Man United, Liverpool's and Everton's, good, bad or indifferent, will fall the ground every single week. Why? Because they have traditions that the fans uphold and still love. That These things are important to me because if it, at the end of the day, if it wasn't all about traditions and history and all that, then why bother? You know, Why not just go and support fucking Real Madrid? Or, or somebody that just wins every week or whatever? No. Because your club is part of your own identity. And I've put a lot of the identity, what I think the club is, into this book through my identity. And I don't really care what anybody thinks about that because it's never going to change. I'm always going to be that person. You know, I might hate people that run the club and work at the club, but I'll always love the team. I'll always love the club as a fucking ethos. 
And I didn't give a fuck what anybody says about that, quite frankly. And if anybody wants to fucking come in and fucking try and change all that, then the man sort of name is very much like fucking Sheen McGowan's fucking Pogue Mahone. You've touched on it a bit earlier about maybe like being like the, the board being interested in certain types of fans and stuff. Like that. And I said this in the book as well because you talk about like, there's chapters for guys that live in Australia and live in yeah. America and either emigrated as Celtic fans or became yeah. Celtic fans mm-hmm. over there. And it, it, there's almost a sense of frustration, I think, in, in the way you're, you're writing about how the club didn't do enough for fans like that. Yeah. Like, they aren't regular attendees, because, almost because the club can't get anything for them, so they didn't count as much. Yeah. Is that right? That's absolutely right. That? I mean, it's... Um, the reason why Celtic is known around the world is because of the Irish diaspora, right? The spread of people because of the oppression and famine and so on, right? The reason... Now, that happened, obviously, in the 1800s and went through the 1900s. So why, why would it still be relevant now? Well, it's relevant now because those generations passed down these stories to their sons and daughters who are born and bred Americans, Australians and whatever, and they've kept the flag flying. Now, the, re- the, 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 the be-all and end-all of that is they are the best ambassadors that Celtic could have. They are the biggest assets that Celtic have got. And Celtic refused to use them because... When you use people like that, and and I mean I and I mean I do mean the word use because people they're happy to be used in that context to help this football club. It's because when they do that, they give away just a tiny, tiny bit of control, and they don't like that. Because if you give away, if you are people like the people who run Celtic, they give away with a tiny bit of control or power, then you start to see them for what they are, and if you start to see them for what they are, you're not going to be very happy. Now, I'm one of the people who have seen them for what they are. I have been in rooms with these people when they talk and I'm absolutely aghast that these people are anywhere near my football club, as I've made knee bones about. These people who run Celtic owe it to these people who get up in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning or last thing at night to go and watch Celtic and all that. I mean, I'll tell you right now, one of the best supporters clubs I've ever been in my life is Perth West in Australia. Well run, well attended, great venues, couldn't be any more welcoming and all that kind of thing. And they are on the other side of the world. What do Celtic actually do for them? Nothing. Yeah. That's the bottom line, nothing. Because as I say, what they'll try and say to them was, you need to hook up to this crappy computer stream to watch the games and gears this and all that kind of thing. Fucking nonsense. You know what I mean? Pre-pandemic times, they could have had people doing there all the time. It doesn't necessarily have to be players. I was welcomed in there, and who am I? If you put somebody associated with a club, they're all going to turn out and they're going to be welcoming and all that kind of thing. Celtic did nothing for the support in Ireland, never mind Australia, New Zealand, America, and so on. You know, you've got guys coming for Ireland every single... I mean, there's a guy I know, Patrick Dunlop. Every single game, he's over. And he stays in the backy beyond an island, Right? So he's got to get up at the fucking middle of the night to jump, get to the ferry port, jump on the ferry, get the bus up, and all that kind of thing. Never ever see him complain. He buys all the fucking strips, including the recent pink striped one that I had a go at my boot. You know, um, never sees a word. Where's the fucking thanks for his support? You know what I mean? Because it ultimately, I mean, you, you can as male as anybody. The supporters are the club. It's not the board or the manager or the players. Yes, we love them. 
and we look up to them and we remember them and especially the great ones that were one of us, you know, and all that. But ultimately, they pass. And the supporters are the, the one um, staple of that kind of whole thing. And that's the reason why somebody like Ange Postacoglu is so popular among Celtic supporters because he's got that right away. And he also said that he was sick to death of people talking about football as if it could be something without fans. Mm. And clearly can. So it's about time that Celtic actually stood up and done something for them other than can you give us money? You know? Because that's just not going to fly anymore. You know, I think now we live in a world where we're kind of getting beyond celebrities, we're getting beyond patronising all that kind of stuff. And we actually need folk at football clubs and all these organisations and all that kind of thing to actually get up off their arses and do something and talk to people and engage to people. Because I'm telling you right now, see, it's Celtic. I don't know what it's like at Hertz or any other club. There's only one person in the entire club that engages with the support, and that is the supporters liaison officer, John Paul Taylor, that we've had on the show. And it gets to the point where that man has absolutely no life. No life. Because he's getting fucking messages 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Can you help me with this? And he does it because he loves the club and he loves the supporters. But the reason he does it is not because the supporters are getting in touch with him. It's because when the supporters get in touch with anybody else at the club, they didn't fucking reply. Yeah, that's... It's quite a... I think it is got a different hearts because we've got the foundation that, but that is putting that kind of pressure on on one person seems mm. seems ridiculous. I know. Um, back back to the book then a bit. So there was, there was a story that you were talking about how your dad had his regular seat on the bus, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a uh, everybody had regular seats, but your dad was closest to the door, so him and your uncle could get into the bazaar first. I had a laugh at that one. Um, well, that was. I mean, honestly, like you know we. When I started going, I used to sit, you know, doing the front with AIM, obviously, as a young boy and that. And then when you get a baby bit of a fucking young rebellious street, you start fucking moving towards the, the back of the bus and the young team and all that kind of mob. So I was kind of, you know, much a, a, a part of the young team and that. And it was funny, we used to stop at Chapel Hall, a place called the Tap Shop, um, an old toll bar game. And the minute the bus pulled in, you would see my old man, and particularly my Uncle Francie, and my Dutch grandpa, Archie, sprinting towards the pub. <laughs> you know, as if somebody had told them the bomb's just been planted on the bus. And that was just so they could get in and get the drink. <laughs> and, you know, I mentioned that, that three of them were all heavy drinkers. And that's not a euphemism. I mean, they drank incredible amounts of alcohol. And yet I can't remember a single incident with the football that where that became a problem. Because they were quite kind of happy drunks, you know what I mean? Particularly Francie and Archie. And I say the book, I mean, they were like the two Ronnies. The things that used to be seen. And it's funny enough, when I was writing this book, I talk every day to Archie's grandsons, Mark Henderson, Stephen Wright, and um, if anybody saw our group chat, you would think they, that we all hated each other. Right, because it's not like, oh, how you doing? It's just literally slaughter, 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 right? And I thought to myself, this is actually just like Francie and Archie used to do, you know? My uncle and their granddad slaughter each other all the time, you know? I mean, Archie was in his 90s and still going to Ross County to watch Celtic and all that, right? And 
they would just sit there and talk and beat each other. And basically, I remember Francis saying one day to Archie, see if you want to say, oh, I'd batter you. or Francie would be talking and Archie would just go right can we break off now and talk a wee bit sense you know it was just like that all the fucking time and that's basically we've just carried that on unwittingly we never made any decision to do that we just carried it on unwittingly and um, so it was it was these kind of things it was drink played a massive part there was no doubt about it like you know what I mean and um, as I say I'd be sprinting 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 and um, but then these people were the types who, you know, bled green and white and, and gave me my um, sort of standing in life in terms of what Celtic were all about and the history and the traditions and the songs and all that sort of thing and instilled in me the things that are important to me now. And, you know, when I speak to, like, you know, unfortunately they're all passed away now but when I speak to people that knew them or my aunties or whatever, they always go oh god you're so like your father or you're so like your uncle Francie when you said that and all that kind of thing and I take that as massive compliments they were not perfect my old man particularly was certainly no flawless by any stretch of the imagination but what they did do their entire life was stand up for Celtic and that was something that just was drilled into me for day one and um, will probably always remain so mm-hmm. So, so when you're writing this book then what's part of the writing process obviously just wondering because it's looking back and it's looking at growing up and no everything was perfect but it's it's how it was and it's what kind of made you who you were and your love for, for Celtic did it stir up any other kind of emotions other than just the nostalgic ones looking back at the football was it, did you find yourself sort of open, on, opening up on things you didn't expect to when you were writing it well I mean, I did, you know, as I say, the story I told, this, the prologue about my father, I, I wanted to, I, you know, a lot of times I have sort of romanticised his life a wee bit, and it wasn't always like that. I mean, sometimes he was, you know, really angry, really drunk, and would give you a letter, and, you know, there's no sense to do about that. And I never, you know, I would never term that as abuse or, or anything like that, Ken. It was just, everybody was like that. And what I actually did was, you know, I thought to myself, I can't write this and just assume that that's what it was like for everybody else. So I asked a lot of people in my age, did this happen? And loads of people were like, aye, absolutely. I got a fucking, you know, cuffing to hear from my old man. I sat next time. Um, one guy in particular said to me, no, 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 it never happened. And I was like, oh, he goes, it was my mother that was famous for the punishment beatings, you know? And, you know, th- these were just kind of things. And it wasn't like, I'm not sitting here now on a psychiatrist here going, oh my God, you know? Because uh, that never affected me in the slightest. You know, as a person, other things in my life have affected me, but that never affected me at all. I've never laid a finger on my own kids. You know, I've never felt the inclination to. I mean, well, actually, that's not true. I felt the inclination to strangle both of them a couple of times, but I've never actually done it. You know, I've not become an abusive father because of that or anything like that, or felt that raising my hands was the best way to discipline folk. Um, and you know, at that point as well, where you know I was a very small and skinny child who had you know. Um, a disability to begin with so I was kind of like a target and never couldn't really defend myself and quite often bigger people defended myself and it was only when I started to grow up and get out of school and all the rest of it that I started to sort of become bigger and stronger and you know being able to defend myself and then unfortunately when I had my whole thing which people all know about in New York when I ended up going to Rikers Island that instilled a thing in me where I didn't actually fear physical violence now. Um, I'm not saying I'm I'm the best fighter in the world or, or can beat everybody up I can't but I, I'm not scared of it 
Um, and that's not really a good thing because it, you know, quite often you can be in situations where you're like, I'm just going to kill that bus. <laughs> you know? and he didn't, but you know, it's like, I don't know what you even feel like that because, you know, the job I did now is, is a complete opposite of that, you know what I mean? So, um, aye, it was um, that, that kind of thing. But at the same time, there was also a sense of community and camaraderie around you, particularly among sales supporters in the 90s where you're only gone because of the love of the club. You certainly weren't gone for the enjoyment of the football or anything like that. And, um, you know, I was like, coming in when we went to the Hamden season, I was like, this is just getting beyond it. Even though Fergus had taken over, here we are now, we're going to Hamden, and fuck me, this is, you know, you can yourself. Hamden's not the best ground at the best of times. It's even worse when you're watching a rubbish team, as you've obviously seen watching Scotland quite a lot of the times. <laughs> but there was a guy on our bus called Ronnie Pooler, great guy, and he'd had an accident where he basically came home drunk one night to his mother's, tried to climb in the window, second floor fell and paralysed himself down the left-hand side of his body. And then there'd been a kind of thing had come in to the bus saying, could anybody take him who wants to come back to the games? And I decided to, I don't know why, like I'm no, I'm certainly no, I'm no mother Teresa, but I, I, I was only 20 year old, you know, I was like, I'll take him and took him to the Hamden season and it was, you know, horrendously hard. You know, he's paralysed him on the left-hand side of the body, used to spit at every blue car, he passed um, got us into trouble and all that and one end we get to Celtic Park the next season we played Murrowell at Celtic Park full of Donald's go for us a one-all draw it, it, his body was getting worse and it took a boot we were parked in the Gallagate for people who remember on the other opposite side of the cemetery and we were in the new stand the main stand the north stand and it took us for, to get for the bus parked in the Gallagate to there an hour and a half which is about a 10 minute walk and when he, got, when he got in I mean I was like breaking point roasting all day and when he got in there he kissed the concrete you know, the stand and he said that's it and he never went back okay. um, so that thing's like sustained but as I say I'm not like oh pat me on the back look at me what I've done that's it's things like that sustain me because all, at that point he was always like well you know why wouldn't you help him he's one of us of course we'll help him <clears throat> You know, even though it would cause absolute murder, I mean, taking him to Broomfield, I don't know if you ever went to Broomfield with Hertz, went to the old Broomfield. The, the, no, I never went. The walk for the buses was like the fucking London Marathon. And I remember it was about 20 to 6 before we got back to the bus, and you're getting on, there's 49 people on the bus looking at you as if they go, fucking hell, man, hurry up, you know? And mm. not much you can do about it, but... Aye, so a lot of the emotions and, you know, probably if I sat down and try and write again, I'd probably get more emotions, you know what I mean? But these were the ones mm-hmm. I held at the time, you know? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was really interesting. There's quite a, a few contributions for supporters mm. and supporters for different clubs as well. Mm. Um, about their experiences in football and growing up. Was that important to you? Was that this type of book wasn't just about your... Well, uh, your memory's gone. You know, it would have been easy for me to just be like, "This is these are the Celtic fucking Aberdeen games I remember and all that kind of thing." But it's like, we all, you know, I've probably talked about that so many times on podcasts and other books and that kind of thing. So I guess somebody like Ali Beg, you know, Bad Boys Inc. and all that dancing and all that shit, who's a big big Aberdeen guy, um, to talk about what his experiences were because I hated Aberdeen in the eighties, despised them for one reason, mm-hmm. they beat us quite a lot. They were our main rivals, so. I thought, what was it like for him? Roughly the same age, you know, growing up on the other side of it. And he'd done a piece, obviously, he'd done a piece yourself. Uh, Ian Calhoun, uh, Hibbs historian, done a piece about, you know, just talking about it. And Ian Calhoun's was very good because I never I never gave anybody a remit and say, right, I need you to write this, this and this. 
I like to just have the creative process flow, but he talked about educating his supporters about their background when playing Celtic and maybe them not realising you know, it's closer than they think to Celtic's kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really good. So I wanted to do that to, to spice it up a wee bit and give people, because I'm always keen on people knowing other people's points of view. I, I'm not interested in tunnel vision here's my wee bubble where everybody agrees with me kind of stuff. Cause I d- how are you going to learn? How are you going to evolve? How are you going to be anything in life? So it was important for me to get the perspectives in, just along with my perspectives as well, and the perspectives, of course, the other Celtic supporters. I mean, one, uh, maybe it was Paul Thompson for the Brockburn CAC. So there's a guy, talked to me stays, roughly the same age, doesn't come from Glasgow. I thought, great, you know, let's have his angle on things and see how close it is to mine and all that kind of thing. Um. And then obviously somebody like Danny Reynolds comes to Edinburgh, but um, about 75 years older than me. No, but older than me and bigger perspective and all that sort of stuff, what he was like in that. Because if people think Celtic, because they live in the East End of Glasgow, that it's just about Glasgow and this and that, it's like, well, it's not really. But it's not, not about, you know, one of the things with independence, thing, I always used to say with people who vote yes, you're never going to convince somebody to vote yes by telling them they were stupid to vote no. So... You need to kind of give reasons why this is why we think Celtic's a bit more than Glasgow and so on. So that's what I tried to dot about that. And then, of course, um, what was really important to me was getting my son James to write a piece um, for the book because he's obviously the next generation of Larkin supporting Celtic. And even my son Jake, who never really that showed that much interest, is now like, I'm going to get that now TV so I can watch the Celtic games. And here's a picture of the logo and all that kind of thing. So. Um, they, that was all important to me because you know I like to get as many voices into a subject as, as possible so that you can, I guess, reinforce what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, th- I think it works really well because it's, everybody's got sort of everybody likes to think they're massively different, and mm. but everybody's got the same sort of feelings on football in general, and and mm. especially the way you're introduced to football, and that everybody's got a story as to how they got into it. So I, I thought it was really good uh, background stuff for mm. a lot of the people involved in it. Um, I guess, finally, for me, mm-hmm. I, you said this is your last book. I guess it's a two-fold question. Is, is it, why is this your, your last book? And also, is it definitely, or is it a case of never say never? No, it's definitely. Um, a lot of reasons. I mean, this is my 17th book, right? I've written a hell of a lot of books. It's been 20 years of writing books. I thought it was a great time to stop now. Being an independent writer is the hardest thing ever now, whereas it never used to be. Ten years ago when I was writing on books, people were all like, oh, fuck the media, fuck this and fuck that. That They're now all going back to that. Quite a lot of them still needing validation and vindication for the media. Still needing to see things in the papers and on mainstream TV shows before they'll believe it or even know anything about it. The algorithms of social media, which I used to rely on, are now totally against me because they are, you know, I'm posting up some and to, like, my Facebook group, which has got 1,400 people in it, and only 134 people are, are actually getting that post reaching them which is just ridiculous, you know what I mean? They're literally no seeing it. Um, books take six months minimum alone, alone at a laptop every day, and therefore it's very difficult to publicise that, right? Because, you know, you put out a film, I put out a film trailer recently, a teaser trailer, almost 6,000 views in a week, right? Great, that's 6,000 people that know about it, plus they'll tell at least one person and so on. How do you do that with a book? Here's some words. Everybody's reading words all day. What's got to be different with my words to anybody else's words? Um, also... I just want to focus on films and plays. I want stuff to be like, here's my writing in front of you, on the screen, on the stage, whatever it might be. 
Um, and really, I just didn't have anything else to write about in terms of a book. Um, I've covered all angles of my life. I've covered all angles of Celtic. It's important to me that the last book was a book like this to kind of talk about my views on Celtic and other people's. And I just felt it was time for change. I just didn't want to keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And then come the final straw was kind of lockdown and everybody wrote a book, you know. Independent mm-hmm. writers, fine, great, brilliant. I've read and buy a lot of them. But it's like everybody who's ever been on the telly has wrote a book and stuck their face in the front of a book and said, here's my life. And it didn't even, you know, here's my memoir. And it's not done memoir. It's like fucking the first 10 years of their life or something. And I'll write you another book when I was famous and that'll be the interesting one. Like, fuck me. So I just thought, you know what? I can't make the impact I could previously because everybody's at it. Uh, but that was why the Ash Sixties was such a success because it hit right at the zeitgeist at the point where all that was going on. Whereas the other things now, it's just like, you know what? It's time to focus on other stuff. I want to write sitcoms, I want to write films, I want to write plays and so on. And you'll see a lot more of that for me in collaboration with other people um, very soon. So it's definitely, and I've also, my guy does a format and I said to him that if I ever come back to him with a book, I'm going to give him my entire vinyl collection, uh, <laughs> Harper. So he was like, right, I've screenshotted that. Because you do, because, you know, as a writer, you're a leech and you'll hear something, you'll see something, you'll think, oh my God, that's a, that'd be a great idea. No. I'm not doing that. If it is a great idea, it'll be a screenplay or a play or a film or something. It'll not be a book. Oh, good. Hopefully, um, so I, I read it. I, I really enjoyed it, and I think it would. I think it would resonate with a lot of fans of all teams. I, I think you're right. What you said earlier is it will probably most likely be Celtic fans mm. <laughs> that will buy the book. Um, but hopefully, our listeners do buy it because it's it's different from uh, other things that I, I've seen on the market. And it's a uh, Really good. So, Aye. if you're well, listening, please, suit, please buy. It's suiting the 8th, probably 16th. That's when the book launches. If you want a signed copy, get in touch with me. If not, it'll be generally release April the 16th. And I just want to thank everybody who's ever bought a book from me, or by me, or even if even the guy that sent me a photo once when he threw one of my books in the bucket. Mate, just all you need is love, as no mouth would say. But thanks for everything, and uh, April 16th is when it's out. Here's Shane.
Grand Joe, Jersey.